Jesus heals a man born blind. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbours and those who who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still, not, they still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he now can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered. And we know that he was born blind, but now he can, but how he can see now, or how, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him; he is of age; he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, "He is of age." Ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been born blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was born blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, You know that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, he listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? 
and they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What, are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim you can see, your guilt, your guilt remains. Thanks so much, Jacob, for that. It should be on here. picture that I've got up on the screen. Hopefully it'll be on the screen for you. Can you see it? Who's seen that before? It's quite a famous picture and I found out it's actually titled My Wife or My (laughs) (laughs) Mother-in-Law. Now I just want to ask, I'll do a quick straw poll here. Who, Who sees a young woman in that picture? Okay. Who sees quite an older woman in that? Oh, right. We split nearly 50-50. Who sees both? Oh, your eyes are really open. That's right. There are two pictures in there, two faces. It's very cleverly done. And if depending on what you focus on the most will govern what you actually see. So if you see the young woman's chin as the old woman's nose, you'll you know, be a bit confused. It's possible to have your eyes open and not see things as they are or not see what others see. It's quite possible. Let me illustrate the point this way. Say I went on an outback safari with the bush tucker man. You heard of the bush tucker man? He's real skilled in the outback and the bush. And I reckon he would point out to me so many things that I would just be blind to. I just wouldn't see them. And he'd point out the significance of this and that. I'd be going, wow, I never saw that. Or I didn't know that. But I also reckon at the same time I would be having an internal conversation that goes something like this. See if you can relate to it. The bush tucker man spends a lot of his time in the bush. I live in Launceston. Launceston's not the bush. He spends a lot of time learning about the bush. I'd like to know more about the bush, but I don't think it's going to be very relevant for me where I live. So I'm not prepared to put in the time and effort to learn more about it. Anyone relate to that? Would you have a... I would have an internal conversation, I know, something along those lines. 
And so I would return from my holiday with a, you know, for this, from this safari with the bush tucker man and I would be so impressed. I'd have heaps of stories and photos to show but I would remain unchanged. I wouldn't be changing anything in my life to learn more about the bush as a result. And I reckon that would be okay because at the end of the day, a bit like the two faces of the ladies there, it doesn't really matter. It's not really going to affect me here in Launceston whether I'm really up on what you know, the latest skills are with survival in the bush or not. But there are other things in life where that's not the case. And it's really, really important that we're clued in to those things. We need to be able to see some things in life for our own welfare. For example, observing traffic lights and watching other drivers. Uh, not driving or crossing the road while you're texting. Not long ago, I saw a lady nearly get skittled on Bathurst Street, head down, texting on her phone, going across and didn't realise the light had changed and a car whizzed by. Just, she got the fright of her life. And it's not a good thing to be doing. Watching your spending habits, paying attention to your relationships or to your health and diet, all of these things... It is good for us, necessary for us, to pay attention to. Now, John's Gospel opens with this theme of light and darkness, if you like, seeing and not seeing, light, darkness. And Jesus is shown to be God's light and saviour of the world with the understanding that this does have real moral and spiritual consequences. So John 1, 1 to 11, I'm not going to read the whole thing, just selected parts of it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, darkness has got moral overtones. So is light here. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. Notice that the light is a he. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So in John's Gospel... John uses various encounters with Jesus to highlight the significance of Jesus being the light of the world and to illustrate and bring to the fore the different views and often the most inadequate views that people have about God and about his son Jesus. So in John 8, verse 12, we just read from John 9. John 8, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never, fall in, never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
But some people took great exception to that and tried to stone him because they considered that claim to be blasphemous. His claims did not fit with their mistaken ideas about God, so they rejected him. They wanted to stone him. So Jesus' encounter with a blind man from birth picks up on this seeing-not-seeing theme, but it does it with a twist. The guy that actually sees is blind, and the ones that can actually physically see are blind. The one that's blind can see, and the one that can see is blind. So just, just look at the straightforward facts of the miracle. As Jesus is trying to slip away from the temple grounds because he's trying to be stoned, he wants to hide, and he comes across a man blind from birth. The disciples don't seem to share Jesus' love and compassion for this man because they seize the opportunity to ask Jesus an age-old theological question about the role of sin in human suffering. What a time to roll out that question. They wanted Jesus to solve the riddle of whether this man's parents had sinned that he was born blind or whether the man himself had sinned that he was born blind. Now look, I'm utterly astonished at the second part of that question. Think about it. They wanted to know whether he'd sinned and that's why he was born blind. So when did he sin? In the womb? Before he was conceived, was he a pre-existent soul without a body? It boggles my mind. But that's, that's the question that was being asked. Despite trying to hide, Jesus takes the time to address this thorny issue and to heal this man because congenital afflictions raise the problem of sin and suffering pretty much like nothing else does. If you've got a child that's born with some congenital condition or you're born with one, you will probably have a pretty fair interest in a question like this. And you may well have wrestled with the idea, did did I do something that caused my child to be born like this? Or... What have I done to be born like this? Why did this happen to me when everybody else seems to, most other people seem to be fine? There's nothing like a congenital problem to highlight this issue and make people think deeply. So Jesus points out something to his disciples to which they'd been blind. You see it in verses 4 and 5. He says here, As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So he makes that claim again from chapter 8. I am the light of the world. And he's saying, while I'm in this world, I'm the light of the world. So instead of focusing on the connection between sin and suffering, he directs their focus to the connection between sin and God's grace. He wants them to flip from seeing one of the ladies to the other, if I can put it like that. 
He wants them to shift their focus from getting fixated on one side of things and to see another side that they may have been blind to. Now, it's very interesting when we look at this passage and, and what Jesus' response is about why this fellow was born blind, you, you might really struggle with it because he says that God might be glorified this man was born blind. Now, that can seem like, wow, what, what kind of a God have we got who's quite willing to arbitrarily make some people go through years and decades of being blind just in order to prove a point, just in order to uh, highlight grace down the track. Is that an adequate view of God? In the Tyndale commentary, Colin Cruz makes this point. I just want... I I wouldn't quote from a commentary normally, but I, I think he's made a really good point here. He says, verses 3 and 4 are punctuated in the NIV, implying that God allowed the man to be born blind so that many years later, God's power could be shown in the restoration of his sight. However, it's not necessary to read the text this way. Two things need to be noted. First, the words, this happened have been added by the NIV translators. They're not there in the Greek. And second, early Greek manuscripts of the New Testament were not punctuated. The punctuation was added much later. So it is possible to punctuate the text and have the following translation. This is how he would translate it. Jesus replied, Neither this man sinned nor his parents. But so that the works of God may be revealed in him, it is necessary for us to work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one is able to work. I think that makes really good sense of the text. And it's not implying that this guy was like a a test case that God had said, I'm going to have him born blind so down the track I can display uh, my goodness in a way that he's just going to have to put up with things for, for a few decades until we get this sorted out. So punctuated this way, the text implies not that the man was born blind so that the works of God may be revealed in him, but that Jesus had to carry out the work of God while it was day so that God's work might be revealed in the life of the man born blind. That's a subtle shift. The shift is this had to be done while it was the works of day, while Jesus was there in order that that the man would be healed and God would be glorified, not the focus being on the fact that he was born blind. So notice, Jesus doesn't rebuke his disciples for their question, but he gently includes them in his mission. See what he says. He says, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. We must do the works of him. So one day, with hearts ablaze in the power of the Holy Spirit, 
they would follow Jesus, doing greater works than these, proclaiming the imperishable news of eternal life, eternal salvation through Christ to a blind and dying world. That day would come. He was training them. He was teaching them. They just had to have their eyes opened and see it. So what is this work Jesus was to do? And what is the night that is coming when no one can work? I I pondered this in in preparing. I I reckon we're given a clue in John 1.18 where it says that, that Jesus reveals the Father. No one has seen God except the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has revealed him. He has declared him. He has made him known. So Jesus' work is to make the Father known. And he achieved this through his teachings and his actions, his miracles. Ultimately, it would be through his death and resurrection. But in John 13, 27, we're told Satan entered Judas. And Judas betrayed Jesus. And then straight after his betrayal, we're told this little phrase... Verse 30, and it was night. Judas went out and it was night. The night had come. It was the hour of darkness until the morning that Jesus arose. Peter denied Jesus three times. He was darkened. The disciples all fell asleep. They couldn't stay awake. They were asleep in the light because it was darkness. They fled to their homes. What happened on the cross? The sun didn't shine for three hours. There was darkness. It was the time of darkness. Jesus' last work was to endure the cross and despise its shame by sleeping in the grave, trusting in God that he would raise him from the dead. And the resurrection is the supreme revelation of God's power and grace to deliver from the unfruitful works of darkness. Jesus said, in, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he entrusted himself to the Father. And the Father came through with the power of the Holy Spirit and raised the Son from the dead. So the time of darkness passed and gave way to resurrection morning. Now there's also... Another thing here, verse 6, it says that he spat on the ground, made some mud and rubbed it in the bloke's eyes. And we might think, wow, that's disgusting. That you shouldn't do that. You can be arrested for doing things like that. I I most certainly wouldn't be doing it. I'd be really thinking twice about that. But to a Jewish audience, what do you think that might have conjured up? Genesis 1, out of the dust of the ground, God creates man and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life and man becomes a living being. It's like Jesus does a creational act to say, I am the light of the world. Through me, nothing that was made has been made. I made it. I have the power to do this. So he showed his God through whom the world was made by how he went about healing this guy. 
and then he sent him off to the pool of Siloam. And Siloam actually means sent. So he sends him to sent. And the man obeys. He's, he's dutiful. He goes. He's sent. He washes in the pool of Siloam, which is quite another part of Jerusalem, more than a Sabbath day's walk. So the temple complex, Jesus just leaving the temple grounds is here. You walk around a number of streets, you have to go outside the wall and around to where Hezekiah's tunnel had been built and the, there was the pool of Siloam. So it would have been a couple of kilometres. So longer than it was legitimate to walk on a Sabbath day. So, but note, it's not until he goes and does that that he's healed. It says that he came back seeing. So Jesus actually, the bit with the mud and that, didn't actually bring the sight straight away. The act was completed by this man's going, by faith. And he trusts and he acts and the healing comes. Can you imagine that trek home for this bloke? You would have gone, wow, that's what colours are. I've heard people talk about it. He'd born blind. He'd never seen colour. He probably heard heaps of voices around him. I reckon he had really good hearing and he was able to put faces to voices and he's able to put objects to sounds and say, that's what makes that noise. That's a cart. I kind of felt that thing before, but that's what it looks like and that's how it operates. It would have been an amazing journey home for this bloke. He's born blind, but now he can see. What a miracle. And the point of Jesus' miracle seems to be lost on nearly everyone except this blind man. We can trace the blind man's growth in faith by how he refers to Jesus as things unfold. Verse 11, when he's asked, who, who healed you, who did this? He says, the man they call Jesus. He's received a mighty healing from Jesus, but when asked by his friends and neighbours how it happened, he simply tells them the facts almost dispassionately in the third person and, and tells them in terms of what everybody else is saying about him, the man they call Jesus. By verse 17, he says he's a prophet. When being interrogated by the Pharisees about how he was healed, he refers to Jesus as a prophet, who's someone who speaks God's message. By verse 33, he's saying he's a man from God. So we see him defending Jesus as a man who'd come from God with a message for the world and he must be God's man because his actions can't be explained any other way. By verse 38, he says, Lord, I believe, and he worships Jesus. Now that's, that's real growth. From the man they call Jesus, a prophet, a man from God, Lord, I believe, I worship you. You see the progression Clearly the blind man gets it. He sees in more ways than one that Jesus is God's son, the light of the world, the Messiah, our Lord and Saviour, and he worships him. Notice what we see here is quite typical of how a person comes to faith in Jesus. First, they go on what they hear and what others tell them, which may or may not be true. They're interested, but they're raw and inexperienced. It's like the man they call Jesus. 
Next, they go searching for better ways to describe and understand what they're experiencing or thinking about Christ. They might read a Christian book or begin to read the Bible or attend Christianity Explored or listen to sermons and talks online. They ask lots of questions because they want to be sure they're not being misled. They're they're piecing it together. They haven't committed to anything definite, but they know there's more and they're searching for it. They begin to realise that Jesus is a prophet. Then they begin to put all the pieces together from what they're reading and thinking and they enter a phase of searching their heart and examining their conscience deeply before God. They might be challenged about it like this blind man by the Pharisees. And and they want to know what he's done. Is it true? Do I really believe this? Can Can I count on this? Can I stake my life on this? And they become convinced and they say... Jesus is a man from God. So they may start coming to church or attending a growth group or something like that at that point because there's enough confidence that, yeah, I reckon this is the right way to go. But there's still that final crucial step of worship, of surrender of your heart and life to Jesus. Personal faith and worship. That's when we really see Jesus and know he's the son of God and saviour of the world. Our Christian baptism declares that. I believe and I worship you, Lord Jesus. It's worth considering where we are along faith's path, isn't it? Have we come to the point of confessing Jesus, of, of saying yes, You are the Son of God, the Saviour of the world, and I worship you. Or are you still back at the point of acknowledging he's a prophet, but you haven't really committed? These are important questions. There's moral implications and spiritual implications. Where are you with the one they call Jesus? Do you call him Do you call on him as Lord? Do you worship him? Is is it the joy and rejoicing of your heart to say, Lord, I believe, help me, guide me, lead me? Does he light up your heart and your world? Is he the light of your world? But we see there's other responses here too, and I'm not going to spend much time on this, but it's worth noting because it's what happens in life. John intends us to place ourselves in the position of the blind man, I think, first and foremost, but also in the position of other witnesses, especially the Pharisees. So we we can relate to that as well. Consider the friends and neighbours in verses 8 to 12. The man's friends and neighbours heard the news he could see and they were curious. Some thought this, others that. And when they asked him, where is this man, he couldn't say. But what he did share was his testimony. Look what he says, verse 11. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. That's called a testimony. You just state the facts. Where is this man, they asked him. He says, I don't know. Jesus is gone. So just the simple facts about what happened is often all that's needed. 
The early days of faith are the most obvious time of change, and but it's also the most difficult time to explain to others because you don't have the vocab, you're not sure of the words, you're not sure whether what you believe is right or not. All you know is what happened to you. So I think the best thing to do is just tell people the facts if they ask you what, what's going on in your life. You don't have to pretend to be a theologian. You don't have to be try and be Don Carson or something and give some uh, you know, obscure explanation about in deep and thorough meaningful way about all that's happened. Just tell them the story. Consider also the blind man's parents. They were no real hope to this guy in his growth in faith. They were so concerned about what the Pharisees would think that they that you know if they supported their son that they caved in and said, "He's of age. Ask him yourselves." Everybody should have parents like that. You know, a real help in time of of difficulty and need. Sometimes our family has another agenda, and it isn't God's agenda. They're more driven by ambition or creating a good impression with others to really care about us. Jesus warned that our enemies may be those of our own family. But don't give up. Keep on growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Let your light shine before them that they may see your good works and may come also to faith. Pray for them daily, especially for God to open the eyes of their understanding to see. But consider the Pharisees. The man was healed by Jesus on a Sabbath, the weekly Jewish holy day, a Saturday, when all work ceased and worship was supposed to be the sole engagement. So the Pharisees quizzed him about what Jesus did, and they quizzed him twice. You'll see verse 13 his friends brought him to the Pharisees, the man who had been born blind. Now, the day in which he had made mud and opened his eyes was a, was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. Their concern wasn't for this bloke. It was about, what was this done on the Sabbath? Verse 24, a second time they summoned the man... They'd taken him to the parents. The parents had referred him back to the Pharisees, so they summoned him again and says, give glory to God, which is a Jewish way of saying, tell us the truth. We put you under an oath. We know this man's a sinner. And he replies, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. He just tells them the facts again. And they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciple too? And that really gets their goat up. And they say, well, you're altogether born in sin. What would you know? And it actually says they hurled insults at him. Everybody should have religious leaders like that hurl insults at you. Wow, what help was he going to be? They're going to be. And then at the end, they throw him out of the synagogue. He gets excommunicated. So that's the, the Pharisees' response. And the bottom line is simply this. Jesus didn't fit their paradigm. They were convinced, if you go back to the picture of the woman... 
the way they were viewing it was the only way it could be viewed. There was no other possible view. And anyone who claimed to see another point of view was just plain wrong. When all along the facts were there, and this man had been born blind, could see it and could get it. And he could understand it. God had been doing a real miracle, not only opening his eyes, but opening the eyes of his understanding, the eyes of his heart, to see the hope to which he'd been called in Christ Jesus. This is what John wants us to see. Sin can blind us to the truth. Perhaps we don't see God in Christ but we need to see God in Christ. Perhaps we're so taken up with stuff. There's work to do, kids to raise, lawns to mow, gardens to weed. There's decisions to be made like buying that car or getting mum into a nursing home. Either way, we risk missing out on knowing the Lord of heaven and, and with everlasting consequences if we don't pay attention and take the time to consider Jesus' claims. But maybe what's holding us back isn't just that we're so caught up in life, it's that we don't want to see. There's none so blind as will not see. Perhaps we've got preconceived prejudices which prevent us from considering the idea that Jesus is the Son of God, the only way to God and the source of everlasting truth and life. We might think the idea that no one can begin to know God except through repentance and faith in Jesus is arrogant, even dangerous. But if you think like this, you won't investigate the Bible. Or if you do, it will only be to fault, find and criticise, and you'll be doing what I did with the Bush Tucker man. You'll be discounting it, saying, ah, it doesn't apply to me. I'm exempt. It requires a big injection of humility and grace to open a person's heart to the claims of God, the living God. The healed blind man found that humility and grace by just following the rabbit trail of facts. He just looked at the facts before him, followed those facts, and they led him straight to Jesus. And he said, yes, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. That's the surest way for us to follow the facts. Follow what the scriptures say. Be prepared to put aside prejudice that we might have and just look and see who is this Jesus? What has he done for me? We just might find that we gain eternal life. It might change our whole world. We see everything in a new light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for sending Jesus into this world, the world he himself created. Thank you for your great love and patience with our blindness of heart, our stubborn unwillingness to look honestly and fairly at the things right in front of our nose, the truth the life of Jesus. Please open our hearts to you more each day. Help us to be like the blind man who 
took the time to think about things. When his parents were no help and when he was opposed, he didn't just give way. Lord, help us to be like him. Help us to see that you can use adversity to grow our faith. That you want us to dig deep and to trust you and to find that you are reliable, that your words are trustworthy and true. We need to hear them and believe them because he who speaks to us is the living and the true God. So thank you for your severe mercies in our life that bring us to faith. Thank you for trials and difficulties that work together for our good. We praise you, Father, that you are so gracious to us that you've sent your son Jesus into this world. Help us to see him as he really is, to believe him and worship him. May we not leave the job half done. May we not have a half-baked faith, but a worshipful faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We do encourage you to stay for, for lunch. It's going